0: Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, thank you for this time now to hear from you in your word. Hear from our Lord Jesus Christ. Hear from the Spirit. We need your word, Lord. It is more than our necessary food. Help me to be able to declare it, Lord. And I pray, God, that Like these disciples, we would encounter you today as you really are, and therefore, believe in you with saving faith. In Jesus' name, amen. Have you ever encountered a scene in real life that reminded you of a scary part of a movie? Maybe you're walking around a city at night using Google Maps and the directions tell you to turn down a dark and deserted street. And you say to yourself, yeah, I'm not going that way. I've seen enough movies to know what happens on these kind of streets. Maybe you're home cozy in your bed, it's the middle of the night, the room is dark, and there's an intense windstorm outside. And amid the constant wailing of the wind through the cracks of the window, You hear the rapping of some tree branches against the window. And you're reminded of a movie you've watched where amid such a scene, the window suddenly shatters and the wild outside rushes into the room. You remind yourself that this is very unlikely to happen, but you still say a quick prayer as you try to go back to sleep. Where Emma and I currently live, sometimes I go outside at night to take out the trash or something, and I can see in the distance a house on the same street, and there's this flickering light. I used to think the light was the light of the TV inside the house, but over time I realized, no, this is a light outside the house. And it's always flickering. I am Of course, I'm reminded of all the movies I've seen where somebody walks up slowly to a building with a flickering light, or maybe they walk into the building and it has a flickering light, and right when they go inside or right when they come to the building, what happens? The light goes out, and you know nothing good happens after that. So even at a distance, when I see that flickering light, I am unnerved. I don't know how the people who live there can stand it. Even though I know rationally there's nothing necessarily dangerous about a flickering light. Why am I bringing up these spooky scenes to you this morning? Because in the passage before us today in the Gospel of John, Jesus' disciples enter into a situation that resembles the scary part of a movie. And like in the movies, those disciples, they are not scared at first. They do not recognize necessarily any danger at first, but then they have a sudden encounter that terrifies them so much so that they all, grown men each, cry out in fear. What is it that they encounter that so frightens them? Is it a deadly storm? Is it a monster? Is it a serial killer? No, something far more frightening. It's the holy and all-powerful God of the universe. Yet in almost the very same moment in which his appearance petrifies the disciples, the Son of God speaks such words to them to not only dispel their fears, but to make them eager to receive him. And to cause him to remain with them. What is this scary encounter? And what can it show us about how we should think about and how we should respond to Jesus? That's what I want to investigate with you today. So please take your Bibles and open to John chapter 6 as we look together at a divine encounter on a dark sea. A divine encounter. On the dark sea. We're in John 6, 16 to 21. Shorter passage than what we usually cover. This is Pew Bible, page 1065, by the way. Recall the context Jesus has just miraculously fed a massive crowd on the northeast side of the Sea of Galilee. The Jews, who are making up that crowd, are so impressed by this miracle that they conclude Jesus is the prophet, the promised prophet who would be like Moses, and that now is the time to take Jesus and make him king, by force if necessary. Take Jesus by force. Yet Jesus knows their plan and forestalls their efforts. He withdraws to a mountain by himself alone. Let's see what happens next as we read John six sixteen to 21. Now when evening came, his disciples went down to the sea. And after getting into a boat, they started to cross the sea to Capernaum. It had already become dark, and Jesus had not yet come to them. The sea began to be stirred up by, because of a strong wind, because a strong wind was blowing. Then when they had rowed about three or four miles, they saw Jesus walking on the sea and drawing near to the boat. And they were frightened. But he said to them, It is I. Do not be afraid. So they were willing to receive him into the boat. And immediately the boat was at the land to which they were going. While Jesus walking on the water is a pretty famous miracle, the inclusion of the narrative about that miracle here in the middle of chapter 6 is a bit puzzling. As I told you last time, last time we were in John, the explanation of the true significance of Jesus miraculously feeding twenty to 25,000 people, the explanation is coming later in the chapter and occupies most of the chapter, verses 22 to 71. So why does John also include for his readers this account of Jesus walking on the water? A miracle which aside from one unanswered question in verse 25, does not receive any further comment or explanation from Jesus or John for the rest of the book. Why include it then? Well, part of the answer must be simple historical accuracy from the eyewitness John about Jesus. Because as the parallel accounts of Matthew 14, which we read earlier, and Mark 6 show us, Jesus did miraculously walk on water right after miraculously feeding the crowd. So John here is simply reporting what happened next in the history of Jesus' life. Nothing wrong with that. We could add, as another part of the answer as to why John includes this, that even though John wants to focus on the miraculous food miracle and Jesus' explanation of it in Capernaum, John must explain for his readers how Jesus got back to Capernaum in the first place. Thus John relates the crossing episode and... Jesus miraculously walking on the water. But I believe the most important reason why John includes this account here is to give to the readers the same revelation of the Son of God that Jesus himself sought to give to his disciples in complement to what they just witnessed in his multiplying the loaves and fishes. Remember, the Jews learned the wrong lesson from Jesus' food miracle they learned that Jesus was the Messiah who was going to meet all their needs and fulfill all their hopes and dreams, including, most notably, kicking out the Romans and setting up a kingdom of total prosperity. The Jews even thought that Jesus could be forced or flattered into giving them whatever they wanted. Now, Jesus is indeed the Messiah and King. They were right about that, but he was not the king like they thought he was king. Their concept of Jesus as king and as son of God was way too low, way too small, way too man-centered. So for his disciples, Jesus wants to help the sec- set the record straight about who he really is and what kind of king he really is. And the disciples need this recentering. Why do I say that? Well, if we, again, consider the parallel accounts to this passage in Matthew 14 and Mark 6. Mark 6, 51 to 52, tells us that after the disciples see Jesus walking on the water and getting into the boat, they were utterly astonished, for they had not gained any insight from the incident of the loaves, but their heart was hardened. Isn't that interesting? According to Mark, Jesus does this massive and merciful merciful miracle of multiplying food, but the disciples are not moved to greater faith or devotion to Jesus because of it. Instead, their hearts are hardened. They gain no insight into Jesus at all. How can this be? Well, maybe the disciples are just as disappointed in Jesus as the Jewish crowd is. Maybe the disciples too were swept up in the enthusiasm of proclaiming Jesus king then and there and inaugurating Messiah's blessed kingdom. But Jesus says no. And they can't understand why. Why won't Jesus give the people what they want? Don't we want what God wants? Isn't this God's will? Well, whatever the reasons, the, the disciples are not moved to worship as a result of the food miracle. Yet listen to what Matthew records as a result of Jesus' miracle on the sea, this walking on the water. Matthew 14.33, Matthew 14.33, And those who were in the boat worshipped him, saying, You are certainly God's son. Ah, That's different, isn't it? That's the right response. Now the disciples get it. Now they see King Jesus as they ought Not as a genie to serve their will, but as the awesome God, whose will they must serve. In C.S. Lewis, the Chronicles of Narnia series, the lion Aslan functions as a symbol for God, even for Jesus. And there's a statement about Aslan in the first book of the series, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, that has always stood out to me. When one of the children visiting Narnia, the youngest, Lucy, asks if Aslan, upon learning that he is a lion, isn't safe, a resident of Narnia, Mr. Beaver, replies, safe? Don't you hear what Mrs. Beaver tells you? Who said anything about safe? Of course he isn't safe, but he's good. He's the king, I tell you. This is similar to a statement made by Mr. Beaver about Aslan at the end of the book. He says, again, about Aslan, he'll be coming and going. One day you'll see him and another you won't. He doesn't like being tied down. And of course, he has other countries to attend to. It's quite all right. He'll often drop in, only you mustn't press him. He's wild, you know, not like a tame lion. In these statements about the fictional character Aslan, Lewis has captured something true about our real Savior. Even the same profound truth that I would say is communicated in this short passage, John six sixteen to 21. Jesus is the Son of God. He is a good and powerful king, the lion of the tribe of Judah. But he is not a tame lion. He is not a king to be domesticated manipulated, imposed upon with your own personal agenda as to what God ought to be, say, or do. In fact, if this is the way you think and believe about Jesus, then you don't have Jesus, and you don't have his eternal life at all. But if you're willing to drop your agenda, drop your preconceived notions of God to behold Jesus as he really is, well, then you will see the glory of God You will be moved to worship. And you will gain eternal life just as Jesus promises. If I may borrow some language from John Newton's Amazing Grace, here's how I would summarize the main idea of this passage. In John 6, 16 to 21, John reports Jesus miraculous walking on the water so that you will fear Jesus as the Christ and the Son of God and believing in Jesus might find all your fears relieved. John reports Jesus miraculous walking on water so that you will fear Jesus as the Christ and the Son of God, as you ought. But then also believing in Jesus would find all your fears relieved. We can divide the passage into three parts to which I will give three simple headings as we progress. And so let's start with the first. The first covers verses 16 to 18. Number one, preparation preparation. Let's reread verse 16 and the first part of verse 17. Now when evening came, his disciples went down to the sea, and after getting into a boat, they started to cross the sea to Capernaum. These verses are pretty straightforward in describing the beginning of a transition from the northeast side of the Sea of Galilee to the northwest side to Capernaum. Jesus is on the northeast side This is part of transitioning to the northwest side. Now, notice John doesn't tell us why Jesus' disciples begin this trip on their own, but the other Gospels do. They tell us that Jesus himself sent the disciples down to the sea and told them to begin the crossing. Meanwhile, Jesus is dismissing the crowds, and he also goes by himself on a mountaintop to pray. So the disciples are to begin the journey without him. And notice that this is taking place, the verse says, in the evening. So sometime after 6 p.m. approximately. This also means that the light is rapidly fading. Remember that we are near Passover time, so t- sometime in March and April. And according to Google, or from what I was able to discover by Google search, the sun sets around 7 p.m. on the Sea of Galilee in April. So the light is fading. Now, again, comparing the Gospels, John tells us that the disciples are headed to Capernaum here. But Mark says that they are headed to the town of Bethsaida. Uh, Those are not the same destinations. How are we supposed to reconcile that? Well, we don't know the full story. But it's possible that the disciples were to make a pit stop in Bethsaida, since that was close to where they already were, and then cross to Capernaum, or cross to near Capernaum. Perhaps the disciples anticipated, since Jesus was not getting with them initially, that he would meet them in Bethsaida later that evening. And then all of them would make the crossing together. By the way, Matthew and Mark record, as we read earlier in the service, that the whole group later disembarks in Gennesaret, which is a town slightly south of Capernaum, on the other side of the sea. So though they end up in Gennesaret, no doubt ultimately they are intending to go to Capernaum, either by foot or by boat. So this is the plan. But whatever the disciples expected, Jesus doesn't rendezvous with them at Bethsaida. Let's read now the rest of verse 17. It had already become dark, and Jesus had not yet come to them. Hmm. Must have been a little bit of a head-scratcher for the disciples. I guess we're going to make this trip across the sea without Jesus? Okay. We don't know if they waited for him in Bethsaida, or for how long, if they did. But eventually, night falls. Darkness descends upon the lake. And the group launches from the shore to travel to the other side according to Jesus' original instructions. Now, You might ask, would the disciples really have tried to travel across the lake, the Sea of Galilee in the dark? Actually, this wasn't as daring as a move as we might think. As many as seven of Jesus' twelve disciples were fishermen, and they were used to traveling across and fishing on the Sea of Galilee at night. Because apparently that's the best time to catch fish there. They're used to going on the sea at night. From what I was able to discover on the internet, you can sail across the Sea of Galilee in about two hours if you've got a favorable wind. Of course, that depends on which part of the sea you're crossing and what's your starting place and destination. So, all right, this might not take that long. But do the disciples get a favorable wind for their crossing? Is it smooth and easy? Well, look at verse 18. The sea began to be stirred up because a strong wind was blowing. Mm -hmm. All right, so this is not going to be a smooth crossing for the disciples. There are strong winds that are stirring up the waves, but maybe the wind is favorable, still in their direction? Well, if you just peek at verse 19, verse 19 tells us that the disciples switch from sailing to rowing, which means uh, the wind is not going in the direction that they want. They have to row. And the other gospels are more explicit in describing the disciples' situation. Matthew says the winds were contrary. going the opposite way and the boat was being battered by the waves. Mark adds, the wind was against them, and the disciples were straining at the oars. Oh dear, this is a hard crossing. The disciples have both the winds and the waves against them, so that two-hour sailing trip, say goodbye to that, this is going to be an all-night rowing ordeal. That's rough. Now, have the disciples gotten caught up in a storm, you know, with the rain, the wind, the lightning, all that. That is possible, but not likely. It's funny, we often imagine this crossing taking place in a violent thunderstorm, but neither John nor the other Gospels refer to the weather here as a storm. In fact, the crossing contrasts significantly with another crossing on the Sea of Galilee that is also recorded in the Bible. In Matthew 8, verses 23 to 27, Matthew says the disciples were caught in a storm On the Sea of Galilee, and it was of such proportions that the boat was being covered with the waves. That storm was so violent, the disciples are afraid and they wake a sleeping Jesus to save them. But here in John 6, as well as in Matthew 14 and Mark 6, there is no mention of the disciples being afraid due to these contrary winds and waves. Besides, What is significantly about to take place in John 6 requires that the disciples be able to observe in the dark, to some degree, what is around them on the sea. And as far as I could find out, ancient Galilean fishing ships did not have windproof lamps that could provide illumination at night, even in strong winds, so they couldn't get light that way. And would the disciples be able to see anything if the night sky was covered with storm clouds? I mean, I suppose lightning flashes might temporarily give them visibility. But what makes the most sense to me, considering all the details the Bible does give us about this scene, is that the disciples are caught up in strong winds, but not a storm. Thus they are enabled to observe barely what is around them on the sea by using available starlight and moonlight. Maybe there's some clouds, but there's still enough light to barely make out what's on the sea. And furthermore, while this weather situation represents a stressful trial, it would not have been frightening to the disciples, who probably would have seen situations like this before. Now it's worth asking, is all this due merely to unfortunate chance? I mean, was it bad luck that the disciples should experience such contrary weather when Jesus specifically directs them to cross the sea at night? no, this is not bad luck. This is not random chance. Rather, as the gospel has already shown us in different ways, this gospel, Jesus both knows all things and is in control of all things. Jesus knew that the disciples would encounter this wind on the sea. In fact, as the divine executor of his Father's will, remember the Son and Father, do everything together, Jesus is the one ultimately responsible for this wind, Jesus made the contrary wind so that the disciples would run into it. Why? Why would Jesus do that? I mean, did Jesus just make a mistake? Let a certain cold front, a warm front get away from him? Does Jesus have a cruel streak? Not at all. As you're going to see, this difficult situation has been carefully prepared so that the disciples would behold a glorious revelation of the Son of God. We move now to the second point of our outline, which covers verses 19 to 20. We had number one, preparation. Number two, revelation. Revelation. Look at the first part of verse 19. Then when they had rode about three or four miles, just stop right there, Notice we are coming to a special moment in the disciples' trip across the lake. It is the moment. It's just the right time. Matthew says this is the fourth watch of the night, so we're talking maybe 4 a.m. It's just the right place. We're about three or four miles across the lake. Mark says they were in the middle of the sea. The disciples have probably hardly slept. They are tired after rowing for so long. And suddenly, the rest of verse 19. They saw Jesus walking on the sea and drawing near to the boat, and they were frightened. Now, this statement is more vivid in the original Greek because the Greek is given in the present tense translated past tense in our English Bibles because that's, that's just the way we talk. But this is present tense in the original Greek, which means the author wants to poetically transport the reader right into the scene. He wants you to behold it as if you were there yourself. So see yourself on the boat. It's still dark. The wind and waves are relentlessly battering the ship's bow. Water sprays rhythmically over the side with each pull of the oars. Your muscles are aching from pulling for hours. Sweat is dripping down your body. You're a little bit chilled. And suddenly you hear a gasp from one of the other disciples. Look, he says, raising a pointed finger. And for a moment you relax your pace to peer into the darkness behind the boat. And suddenly you see it there's a figure, dimly lit, floating or walking on the water. You cannot tell who or what it is. All you see is the silhouette of a head and arms and what looks like garments glowing pale in the white light of the moon. The figure travels steadily forward, somehow unhindered by the wind and the waves. And you realize in an instant where he's going. He's coming straight for your ship. This figure, he's already so close, soon he'll be upon you. I ask you, what would you feel in such a moment? Is it not exactly what the disciples fear feel? Absolute terror? John says in verse 19, "And they were frightened. I'll say, Matthew reports they were terrified and said, "It is a ghost." And they cried out in fear. Mark says, they supposed that it was a ghost and cried out, for they all saw him and were terrified. You might ask, did the disciples believe in ghosts? I doubt it. But they had no other category of explanation for what their eyes were telling them. We can imagine their thoughts. I don't know what that being is out there, but it's different. It's alien. It's not like anything I've seen before. Obviously, it's extremely powerful. No one can just stride across the sea. And I don't know what this being's intentions are, yet it's coming straight for me. How can one not be frightened when encountering a being who is clearly not of this world? And if we're paying attention to what John already told us, you know these thoughts are actually appropriate when one meets the Son of God. He is not of this world. He is the eternal creator. He is the Lord of all time, matter, and space. He is absolutely holy, set apart from sin. You have never met anyone like him before, and you do not know the infinite counsels of his mind. So it's a frightening situation. But then this approaching supernatural figure does something that totally changes the mood of this scene. Verse 20. But he said to them, it is I. Do not be afraid. Is this not so beautiful? When Jesus sees that his disciples, observing him in this incredible way, walking on the sea, when he sees it causes them to be afraid, he immediately seeks to dispel their fears. How By at once proving to them that this ghostly figure is not as foreign to them as they suspect. Actually, the verb said here, translated said in verse 20, is also in the present tense. So the author wants us, as if we were there, to hear these words from Jesus ourselves It is I. Do not be afraid. They can't even make out the face of this figure yet. He's not close enough. But they hear the voice and they say, wait, I know that voice. I know that voice. I know that person. Think of all that is contained in that simple self-identification. It is I, Jesus says. It's me. It's your rabbi. It's your teacher. It's your friend. You know me. You've spent many days with me. We've eaten together, traveled together, talked together. You know my character. You know my heart. You know my love and loyalty for you. Therefore, do not be afraid. Take courage. Do not be afraid. Yes, as you can see, I walk on water. And my will is above and independent from yours. But my intentions for you are not evil not to your harm, but for your good. My power is not ultimately meant to terrify you, but to comfort you, to cause you to believe in me with all your heart. You know, someone might ask, if Jesus did not want his disciples to be afraid, why did he approach them in the frightening way that he did? I mean, couldn't he have done something different? Why put the disciples through this whole ordeal of roaming all night against the wind? Why not just travel with them from the start, make the journey smooth and easy? Somewhere along the way, just get out of the boat, show them you can walk on water, and get back in. Wouldn't that have been a lot easier on your disciples? That's a fair question. And if we think about it, we must admit that the answer must be that Jesus did want his disciples to become momentarily afraid so that they would realize something. The disciples needed to be reminded, and they needed to see in a greater way the same truth that all genuine followers of Jesus must see, and that is Jesus Christ, the man, is also God. He is holy God. Always true disciples of Jesus must be on guard against straying from the Bible's narrow way in regard for Jesus. Jesus is both holy, exalted, unknowable God at the same time as he is loving, humble, knowable man. This seems... These things seem like they contradict, but they don't. They are true in the same time. And you must maintain them both in your regard for Jesus. Otherwise, you will go astray, and you will not regard Jesus as you ought. If you stray too far to the one side, and mostly regard Jesus just as holy, even as holy God, then you will only be terrified of him. And you will feel like you cannot relate to him or he to you. You will find yourself, as many do in the Roman Catholic Church, and the Greek Orthodox Church, feeling like Jesus is just so distant. And to help you in, in your salvation, or to help you in times of need, you will find yourself turning to more immediate and sympathetic intercessors, human saints, rather than that scary God, inhuman Jesus. You will not end up loving or trusting a Jesus whom you cannot help but see as only a distant and holy judge. But if you stray too far to the other side and mostly regard Jesus only as loving, even as a loving man, then as much as you appreciate Jesus' compassion and sympathy, you will find that you cannot respect him or regard him him with divine honor or holy fear like you should, as is frequently the case for many in prosperity churches or even American evangelicalism broadly, you will feel that. Jesus is really there to serve you and to fulfill your will. He's there to satisfy your felt needs, give you the treasures of the world, give you forgiveness from sin, get you out of hell, give you purpose and comfort. You will not feel much compulsion to obey him because he's so understanding. You might even find yourself getting angry with him, disappointed with him that he fails you in various ways. Thus, you will not end up regarding Jesus as holy, but more like a pal, a bro, a butler. The Jews and even Jesus' own disciples, they were starting to go too far to this latter side, seeing Jesus as something less than holy God, even a Jesus who's all about man's agenda. Therefore, it's this experience on the sea is a critical revelation of Jesus as the otherworldly sovereign and holy god. In fact, Jesus words to his frightened disciples are themselves illustrative of this balanced or this need for balanced regard of Jesus, that proper tension of familiarity with Jesus and unfamiliarity. Jesus calls out in verse 20, "It is I." which is, if you think about it, a somewhat ambiguous expression. On the one hand, the Greek for the phrase ego eimi, it does translate to it is I. It is the way that any person would identify himself. We actually hear the man born blind when they're like, are you really the man who was born blind? He says, ego eimi, it is I, I'm the one. That's the normal way you'd say it in Greek. So it's appropriate for Jesus to use this phrase to comfort his disciples by reassuring them that they know him already. Jesus is not some malevolent phantom. He's the man and teacher that they already know. He's Jesus. On the other hand, ego eimi, the Greek ego eimi can also be translated I am. As in, I am who I am. That Statement of self-revelation that God gave to Moses when Moses asked, oh, who should I tell the people is sent them, or sent me to them? He says, you tell them I am. I am who I am has sent you. That's an explanation of the name Yahweh. Indeed, Jesus will use, as we've already noted, Jesus will use the expression ego eimi later in John to quite obviously assert his deity. And they'll try and stone him for it. And wouldn't it be proper, after performing a miracle that only the great I am could perform, that Jesus should then identify himself to his disciples as I am? Really, it is both because Jesus is our familiar friend and unfamiliar God that the second part of Jesus' statement can be heeded so readily. Do not be afraid. If you have Jesus' love because you know him, but if you know Jesus' sovereignty because he's the unknowable God, then let the winds and waves do what they will. The Son of God will keep you safe. You don't need to be afraid. Did the disciples get this? How do they respond to Jesus' words and this divine revelation? We come to the third part and the third point of our sermon outline, just on the last verse of our text. Number three, invitation. Preparation, revelation, invitation. Verse 21a, so they were willing to receive him into the boat. If you were paying attention to the scripture that was read earlier in the service from Matthew, you notice that John cuts the chase here. He doesn't include at all the experience of Peter walking on the water to meet Jesus. That is part of this scene, but it doesn't fit John's purposes to record it. John takes us straight to the point where the disciples want Jesus to get into the boat with them. They verified that is indeed Jesus, the one we know. Let's have him get into the boat. What a significant turnaround from what they were just doing. Crying out in fear and seeing him, and now they're saying, get into our boat. Actually, I can't help but feel the translation, they were willing, is a little little too tame. Better is the ESVs, they were glad. They were glad to receive him into the boat. And why do I say this? Because the Greek verb here is thelo, with the primary meanings of to want or to wish. And the verb is in the imperfect tense, which indicates a repeated action in the past. So we could translate the phrase that's used here, we could translate it as they were wanting or they were wishing. So while they were willing is an adequate translation, I don't know about you, but it gives me the impression that the disciples are somewhat hesitant to bring this scary Jesus into the boat. And I don't think that's the idea here. Once the disciples verify that it really is Jesus, their Jesus, even the Son of God, They were eager to bring him into the boat. I mean, wouldn't you be? You've seen his divine power, but you know his love. Don't you want to be wherever he is? Guys, what are you waiting for? Bring him into the boat. And look what happens when they do. The rest of verse 21. Immediately the boat was at the land to which they were going. What's that mean? Well, the other Gospels mention that the wind stops as soon as Jesus enters the boat. So some interpreters think that this phrase is just John's way of saying that it was smooth sailing or smooth rowing after that. Disciples got to Capernaum, or rather Gennesaret. They got there in no time. But that's not what this verse says. It says here, immediately the boat was at the land. Now, immediately is pretty immediate, and they were immediately on their way to the land. They were at the land. So what happened? It was another miracle. Jesus gets into the boat, and instantly the boat is at the land. And I imagine this was accomplished probably in a similar manner to how Jesus had multiplied the loaves. There was no sudden whoosh of the boat through the water. There was no dazzling lights, sound effects. It was just the disciples are looking at Jesus. They get him in the boat, and all of a sudden, they feel a bump. And they realize the boat is against the dock. And they're like, when, when, did, when did that happen? And this, Jesus, the Son of God, again, shows his divine sovereignty but also his compassionate ability to provide exactly what his people need at the right time. He got his disciples to the other side. It wasn't in the way they expected, but he knew what they needed, and he provided. So where does that leave us at the end of the text? It leaves us with me asking whether you are going to be like the believing disciples or the unbelieving crowd of Jews. When the narrative picks up again in verse 22, Jesus is going to begin exposing the incomplete faith and the selfish motives of those who believed a version of Jesus that was less than what Jesus actually is, the Son of God. When Jesus does this, the fake disciples will then leave Jesus while the true disciples will stay. So which one are you? Which one will you be? Have you seen from our text today what John, what the Spirit has intended you to see? I told you John reports Jesus miraculous walking on water so that you will fear Jesus as Christ and the Son of God and then believing in Him might find all your fears relieved. Have you done that? Do you have a biblically balanced view of Jesus? He is holy. He is loving. He is God. He is man. He is completely unfamiliar. He is so familiar that you can draw so near to him. Can you truly say that you regard Jesus with holy reverence, which makes his saving love for you, all the more precious. If you really want to make much of the love of Jesus, you must appreciate his holiness. That's what makes his love so incredible. Do you believe in the real Jesus, who is rightly about his father's agenda and not yours? Is it now your conviction that Jesus' way is always the best way, even if it doesn't make sense to you? Because he's holy God. He's so far above you. You don't have the ability or the right to question him. Rather, you are to trust him. Truly, all those who regard Jesus rightly will do a version of what the disciples do here. They bring Jesus into the boat. They eagerly bring Jesus into the boat. Now, as I said earlier with Wild Aslan, bringing Jesus into your boat in one way is a dangerous action. You don't know where Jesus will take you, you don't know what Jesus will ask from you. But Jesus is the King, and his heart is good. He may bring you into some contrary winds. You may find yourself rowing all night and making little progress. But at the right time, he will show up and he will bring you to the land to which you need to go. Will you trust Jesus to bring you to the opposite shore? Not just with the trials and challenges of your life, but ultimately for your salvation? I mean, I think we can see a salvation application from this passage. Without Jesus to be the one who saves you all on his own, you're going to make no progress with God. All your attempts at good works, they're not going to move you one inch closer to God's shore because all your good works are polluted with selfishness and pride and that drive to earn God's favor. the only one who can really make this salvation happen, who can really bring you to God is Jesus by his perfect life, his perfect death, his resurrection. So he says, trust in me. Don't trust in yourself. Don't rely on yourself. Trust in me. I will bring you to God. Do you believe that? Are you willing to wager your soul on that because you're so sure? The Bible gives you ample reason to do that, even in this passage. Jesus will fulfill his part, his promise to all those who trust in him. He will bring you to God's shore. In fact, he does so instantly when you believe in him, when you truly believe in him, you are already on the shore of God's salvation and will never be removed from it. One day you'll experience that in full when by death, Or by the Lord's coming, He takes you to the other side. You can trust Him with that too. You don't have to fear death. But until then, as you face the trials of life, as we face the trials of life together as brothers and sisters in this church, who's going to bring us to the other side? It's going to be Jesus. It's not us. It's not our rowing. It's going to be the Son of God who controls the winds and the waves and who can walk on water. Are you willing to trust Jesus to do that? Bring him into the boat. Indeed, he is not like a tamed lion. We must let our king do as he chooses, as his own wisdom and love determine. But we can... Trust him because he is good and we know his love for us. So let's diligently help one another to do this as a church family. Whatever the Lord chooses to bring in our lives until he brings us to himself. Let's close in prayer. Lord Jesus, you know it is so hard for us to keep the proper regard for you in our hearts. So easy we so easily we believe in a Christ who is too distant or too near, a Christ who is not that holy, or a Christ who is not that loving. Both of these things are. True, infinitely true. We have no idea how deep your holiness is, and we have no idea how deep your love is. These do not contradict, these do not compete. They are both true at the same time. And you've given us this passage, Lord, I believe, to remind us of that. You are not of this world, you are not a chum, you are not a buddy. You are a holy God. and yet you are our God. you are our friend, our heavenly husband. We have such an intimate relationship with you now by the gospel. You, you have promised that you will never leave us, even though you are in your body at the right hand of God in heaven, so far away from us in your spirit, you are right here with us right now. You are dwelling in the temple of your body, which is the church, and even in the individual members of it. You're not distant at all. You're right here with us, even as we go through the trials of life that you yourself, yourself, as the triune God, have laid out for us. So God, as we need to learn again and again, help us to trust you. Help us to love you. Help us to be about your will and not our own because your will is the best. We think we know, but we don't know. We're not God. So God, let your will be done in our lives. Let the people of this church repent of these false concepts of you even the pride of our own hearts, to love you in your way fully again. Lord, I pray that we would worship you just like the disciples did when they saw you display your glory in this way. Not just today, this hour, and in this prayer, but every day. By your spirit, Jesus, we know that you will enable us to walk in the way you've set out for us. Help us to take advantage and to help one another do it. In Jesus' name, amen.